accusations against me because I'm fallen I've made a million mistakes but God knowing all these things about me still redeemed me Jesus still died in my place all the things that I deserved punishment for God gave to Jesus instead of me and God justified me even though I have been infinitely wrong Jesus stood in my place and that's the gospel story the enemy has plenty to accuse everyone of You've made mistakes, just as every other person has. And Satan has plenty of ammunition to take before the throne of God. And he will, too. The Bible reminds you that he is the accuser. But as Pastor Daniel shares today, it doesn't matter what the enemy brings to God if you're covered by the blood of Jesus. You're not guilty of anything Satan says. You've been redeemed. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Romans chapter 8 as he continues his message. Have your questions answered. Sometimes we say these things, but we really don't believe it. Like, we want to believe it. We say, well, maybe for Fusco, God is for him, but like, you don't know what my story is. Right? Or you're looking at all the things that are against you right now, all the struggles that are in front of you, very real struggles. And you're saying, but listen, all these struggles are in front of me. But really what it's saying here is that even though we have a million struggles and a million things could be against us, God is for us. And that takes priority over all of the other struggles. Because look at what it says next in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Do you know how you know that although things might be against you, God is for you? Because God delivered up his own son for us. See, the grounding of this promise is the cross. Really what he's saying here is the cross is so powerful that it helps us to frame our entire lives. I always say that I want to see my life through the lens of the cross. I want to interpret the world that I live in. I want my heart to be cruciform shape. I see everything through the lens of God's perfect plan to deliver his son up for my sins. Because really what he's saying is that, look, if God will do that, then you can trust no matter what's coming against you. Because God is for you, you already have the victory. It's one thing to watch a game and to not know the outcome. It's another thing to know the outcome and then watch the game. Do you realize that you and I, we live our lives and we battle from a place of victory, not from a, I hope that we're victorious. Can you imagine how that would change things? If you realize because God gave Jesus for me, Even though all these things are against me, I know that God's for me. And all these things that are against me, all of these things, God has them in his hands. Now, here's the thing. We had said it and I'd read it to you. If we know that God is for us and these things are against us, 
what is the purpose of the things that are against us? To conform us to make us more like Jesus. That's how God uses these things. The things that come against us, the struggles that we have, the situations that we find ourselves in that are not pleasant. Really what God is doing is is he leverages those things to make us more like Jesus. Now I know what I've learned about myself and I think I'm just like everybody. I really do want to be like Jesus except I don't want to be there when it's happening. Like I want to be changed and I want to be transformed except when I'm in the situation where I have to be transformed and then I really would rather not want to be there. Listen, aren't you like that too? You're like, God, I want to be so patient. And then you get put in a situation where you have to wait and you realize that you are the least patient person in the world. Right? Like, God, I just want to be, I know the fruit of the spirit is being patient and then you're, you're late for work and you run into the coffee shop and there's a line out the door. And you're like, I should have ordered ahead. Why didn't I order ahead? Why don't they have an order ahead? Why is everybody ordering 97 drinks? Right? And you're super mad about it. Right? Or you say to yourself, you know, God, you have forgiven me and I want to be made more like Jesus. And then God puts you in a situation where perish the thought. You have to forgive somebody. And you're like, I will not forgive them. You do not know what they did to me. You do not know how that feels. And the Lord's like, hey, listen. This might be coming against you, but I said you got to forgive. If I've forgiven you, you got to pay that forward. If you understand my forgiveness. Or, of course, if you read the Gospels and you realize when Jesus was falsely accused, did Jesus defend himself? No. Right? Sure enough, you think someone mistook what you said and you get all on the offensive. Right? Making sure that they know where you're coming from. And the Lord is just like, when I was accused, I didn't even open my mouth. See how hard it is? See, when things come against us, God is saying, look, I can transform this to make you more like Jesus if you'll let me. But for most of us in that moment, the last thing we want is to become like Jesus. Right? We want to take up arms and make sure that everyone realizes that you're wrong and I'm right. But when you do that, you short circuit exactly what God is doing. Because brothers and sisters, we live our lives from a place of victory. Not just hoping for victory. So if God is for you, what's really against you? Everything that happens, God leverages, transforms to make us more like Jesus, which is who we really want to be like. Now, I took verse 32 and I related it to the last question, the second question in verse 31. But now look what happens when I take verse 32 and I relate it to the question at the end of verse 32. Look what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I'd say the third question this way. Can God be this good? Can God be this good. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, if God sent Jesus, delivered him up, didn't withhold him, gave him for my sins, how shall God also not, with Jesus, also give me everything else that I need to be sanctified? See, here's the thing. Do you really believe that God is as good as he really is? Do you believe he's that good? See, Paul is saying, if God will give Jesus to die on a cross for me as a rebel, for you as somebody who's rebelled against God, if God would give 
him who is the most value to God, Jesus himself, for you, then how will God not give you all the other things that you might need on this journey of life to be grown up, to be transformed? This is called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God will give you Jesus, and that's who you really need, then all the other things you need, why wouldn't God give you that? If he's going to give you his own son, why wouldn't he give you everything else as well? So you know what I believe? I believe that for many of us, we have forgotten how good God really is. Do you realize that God is the personification of all things that are truly good? Goodness is the fruit of the Spirit. God is good all the time. And all the time what? God is good. But do we really believe that? So you know what happens? I think what happens is that for many of us, We come to know Jesus and we realize how good God is. But then we spend enough time in the body of Christ and we kind of become like spiritually entitled brats. Right? Where we begin to think that God owes us something. And it reminds me of this story. Remember that story that Jesus tells in the temple where there is a tax collector and there's a Pharisee? And the tax collector in the presence of God is beating his breast and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the Pharisee is like, yeah, I'm just happy I'm not like that dude over there. And Jesus said, which one of these guys goes away justified? So you know, you know what goes on? When you first come to know Jesus, you realize only a good God could save me. But then you spend enough time within the body of Christ that you forget how good he is. And we begin to start thinking, God's not doing me right right now. God's not taking care of my situation the way I think he ought to. You know, I was thinking about this in regards to can God be this good? Now, when my mother passed away, I was 21 years old. My mother was 49. And, and it was kind of a brutal two years when she was sick. And I mean, you know, the technology has gotten so much better now than it was 20 years ago. And so we went through some really horrible situations. But I didn't know the Lord when my mom passed away. And I didn't really understand it either, but I wasn't mad at God when it happened because I didn't believe in God. So I was just like, well, this is the way life goes and whatever. And, you know, and this is what it is. And then after I came to know the Lord, I had the most amazing thought. I had the amazing thought was I can be mad at God for giving me 21 years with my mom, or I could thank him for the 21 years I had. And what I realized is that I could have very easily been very upset I can't believe God would do this to me. I mean, why would you do that, God? But what I realized is actually, God was really awesome to me to give me my mom for 21 years. When was the last time you thanked God for all the good things he's done? When was the last time, instead of saying, God, you did not do it right by me, you said, God, I want to thank you for what you have done. See, That's a subtle difference, but it really boils down to your understanding of the goodness of God. The Bible says that when we all know as we are known, when we understand all that is, no one will be able to bring a reviling accusation against the Lord. No one's going to be able to say when we stand before God and all the books are open that God was not good. But the question is, can we live that on this side of eternity? Can you live that at street level where you're living right now? When was the last time you said, God, you are the best person I've ever met? 
When was the last time you woke up in the morning and you said, God, you are so good to give me one more day. God, thank you so much for the person next to me or the person that I'm waiting to be next to me. God, thank you for my kids, even though my daughter picks her nose for the glory of your name. Thank you for her. Do you realize how good God is? And really what I'm saying is that you can hope if God will give his own son for you, God's not going to withhold anything you need to be sanctified. If God's goal is to make you and me more like him, if he's already given us Jesus, whatever you think you're lacking, you're actually not lacking. He's withholding it because you don't need it right now. Because he's that good. He won't withhold what you need to grow. He won't withhold it. So can God be this good? Now, as we continue on, notice what it says in verse 33, we, we get the, the fourth question, right? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So I'd say it this way. Can anyone accuse us? It's the fourth question. Can anyone bring a charge against us? See, a charge is an accusation, right? Can anyone bring a accusation against us. Now, what's amazing is, is next he says, it is God who justifies. Now, remember I said that if God is for us, all these things can be against us, but because God is for us, we're fine. In the same way with charges or accusations, you know in the Bible that the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's Revelation chapter 12 or 7, right? So, Satan comes and he brings an accusation or a charge against you, against me, right? But he's saying, but it's God who justifies. See, the reason Satan can bring a charge against us or another person can bring a charge against us is because all of us are flawed. All of us have sinfulness within our lives. There's not one of us that is completely perfect except for Jesus. And so there is valid data that says that you and I can be accused. But... If you know the gospel story, if you know the good news of the gospel, what the Bible teaches about Jesus, the judge throws out every charge. Because that word justifies, it literally means that God declares not guilty those who are guilty. Now here's the thing. Really what it's saying is that all sorts of accusations can be brought against us, but God justifies us. Now here's the thing. And this is something that as a church... Our staff talks about this a lot, but this is such an important principle. I want to make sure you get this, that in each one of our lives, there is a gap between what you expect to happen and what you actually experience. So there's expectation on one side, what you hope to happen, and then there's the experiences that you have. And in the gap, right, between what you expected to happen and what actually happened, each one of us gets to fill that gap, right? We by ourselves, up to you, you put something into that gap too. How do you bridge the gap between what you expected to have happen and what you experience, right? Now, what we've learned, of course, is that really you put one of two things in the gap. You either put suspicion in the gap, you put accusation in the gap, or you put trust in the gap. But here's the thing, when you put accusation in the gap, you tear down a relationship because that's what Satan does. He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan's job is to tear down relationships, to destroy intimacy. But when you put trust in the gap, you build up a relationship. And here's the thing. Every single one of us does that with all sorts of people every day. You expect one thing, you get another thing. What do you fill the gap with? Here's what I'll tell you. If you fill the gap with accusation, suspicion, 
you're actually living out the fragrance of death in this world. Accusation is the ethics of hell. It is the aroma of death. How often in our marriages do we put suspicion or accusation in the gap? How often in our relationships do we put accusation in the gap? How often instead of hoping the best about somebody, we insert the worst possible motives into that on our jobs, at our schools. See, what this is teaching us is that are there reasons to put suspicion in the gap? Sure, because everyone's sinful. But guess what? Satan tries to put accusation in the gap with God and God says, throw that out of my courtroom. Why? Because God sent Jesus to receive the punishment. And if God will not accept the accusations from the enemy about me, that's really true, then why should we peddle an accusation any longer? See, this is what happens when Jesus hits street level where you live. Where all of a sudden you say to yourself, I want to put suspicion in the gap, but I'm going to go actually ask them where they were at. Because what I've found is that whenever you ask somebody about something you're putting suspicion in the gap on, they'll almost always tell you either A, that's not what I was coming from at all. That wasn't my heart at all. I'm so sorry you would think that. No, this is what I was trying to do. And you find out that actually what they were trying to do was beautiful. Or what they do is they own the fact that they had ill motives and they apologize. I shouldn't have talked that way to you. I shouldn't have done that. And either way, guess what happens? The relationship gets built up either by us realizing that someone is trustworthy and we're pretending and we're treating them like they're not or somebody isn't being trustworthy, but they're owning it. And you see how transformational that is? But we get that because that's exactly what's happened for us. God could absolutely receive infinite accusations against me because I'm fallen. I've made a million mistakes. But God, knowing all these things about me, still redeemed me. Jesus still died in my place. All the things that I deserved punishment for, God gave to Jesus instead of me. And God justified me. Even though I have been infinitely wrong, Jesus stood in my place. And that's the gospel story. So let me ask you this. Are you peddling an accusation today? Are you the kind of person who every time something doesn't go the way you want, you put suspicion in the gap? Every time you don't get what you want from God, do you put suspicion in the gap with God? Isn't that how the fall of Adam and Eve happened? God said, you can eat every tree of the garden, all of it, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent came and said, hey, Eve, so what are we eating today? She's like, I can eat anything I want, except for that one tree. The serpent said, oh man, you know why God doesn't want to eat that tree? Because if you eat of it, God knows you'll be like him. God doesn't want any competition. The serpent put suspicion in the gap. God's holding out on you, Eve. God doesn't want to give you all the blessings that you could experience. And by inserting that accusation, inserting that suspicion in the gap, all of a sudden everything starts to unravel. And what's amazing is, is that reality is still playing out every single day in all of our lives. Are you putting accusation in the gap? Who's going to accuse us? But God justifies Although the accusations might have some weight to them, data that backs it up, God still chooses to justify those who deserved punishment. But it doesn't only stop at accusation, because by the time you get to verse 34, look what it says. Who is he who condemns? Will anyone 
condemn us. So it's one thing to be a charge or to be accused. It's another thing for the judge to bring a guilty verdict. That's what condemnation means. It's to judge under condemnation. It's to render a verdict that says, because of what you have done, now this is your punishment. So it's one thing to be accused. It's another thing to be condemned. But in verse 34, the apostle Paul gives us in one sentence why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look what it says. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, I want you to circle verse 34 in your Bible. Because in one sentence, we understand the good news of Jesus. First, it says, it is Christ who died. The reason no one can condemn the person in Christ is because Jesus was condemned in our place at the cross. So the cross becomes the centerpiece. Jesus was condemned in my place. That's what the cross means. Every time you look at the cross with the eyes of faith, you realize that what I did put Jesus there. People argue for history. Who killed Jesus? Did the Jewish people? Yes. Did the Romans? Yes. Did you and I? Absolutely. All of humanity joined together to crucify Jesus. I was there and you were there as well. Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, but he didn't only die on the cross. He rose again on resurrection Sunday. Why? Because death couldn't hold him anymore. He wasn't deserving of that guilt. Death couldn't keep him. Death had to give him back. It's kind of like when someone gets a home run in the opposing team's ballpark. They don't want to keep that ball. They throw it back. In the same way, when Jesus died, death couldn't keep him. Death could have kept everybody else, but not Jesus. He rose again. But not only that, then it says he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This speaks of Jesus' ascension into heaven and his exaltation in the heavenly places. I know the right hand of the Father is kind of a strange term, but because the majority of the population has always been right-handed, the idea of the right hand is the hand of strength. So like if we carried swords, you'd have your sword on your left hip because you were right-handed, right? Now, for those of you who are left-handed, it doesn't mean that God loves you less, right? God loves wondrous variety, but you're in the minority. And so if if the majority of people would have been left-handed, it would say that he's seated at God's left hand. Does that make sense? So the phrase, it's like he's seated at the hand of power, right? That God is, Jesus has been exalted, And not only does he sit at the right hand of power in his exaltation, but it says he makes intercession for us. So Jesus is there standing in the gap for you and for me that God's will would be done in our life. So the beauty is, is because we are not condemned because of the finished work of Jesus, then you and I, we do not live our lives condemning other people. Jesus is If Jesus is your Savior, you're no longer guilty of the sins that were laid at the cross. His blood removed them, and his death was the punishment. In God's eyes, you're pure. Pastor Daniel reminded you today that even with this fresh start, you're still human and need Jesus, and you're no better than anyone else. Don't approach unbelievers from a place of pride. Remember that you've been saved, and share that hope with them. 
Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel, and I want to be honest with you for a moment. Life is messy, and the hard reality is, if it isn't messy for you now, it will be, and it probably has been in the past. Did you know that you can still thrive in tough times? It's true, you can, but only through the power of Jesus. That's the purpose behind my book, Honestly. I want you to know how to keep living your best life in Jesus, no matter the circumstances of your life. You can find out more about it and get your own copy at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time when Pastor Daniel will tell you exactly what can come between you and God's love for you. Here's the answer. It's nothing. No person, organization, government, or spiritual being can separate you from the love your Heavenly Father has for you. It's an unbreakable bond, lasting through every storm and every triumph, holding you tightly to the Creator. Well, we wish we had more time today, but we'll have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series called The Secret Sauce. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.